Kia ora whanau, it's Matthew Cutler-Welsh here and this is another episode of Build Aotearoa, uh, a podcast series that I'm doing on homestylegreen.com. Got a couple of news items to cover off this week and then I'm going to dive into an interview because I caught up with Jonathan Holmes this week uh, who is a Passive House certified consultant and has done some really cool stuff in the last few years uh, about carbon which we're going to dive into. Uh, but we kind of start at the other end of the spectrum because Jonathan uh, typically works with design architects uh, with some very lovely homes around Queenstown, Queenstown Central uh, South Island um, at, at the very high performance of Passive House end of, of the building spectrum. Um, but something else caught my attention, which I guess also touched me a little bit this week because it brought home some of the reality of what a lot of people are facing. So let's kick it off. Uh, here are some just thoughts on uh, some of the items of the news this week, and then we'll get into Jonathan's interview. One of the biggest local news stories this week was the news itself. I listened to Tova O'Brien's take on the announcement of the proposed shutdown of News Hub and what it could mean for journalism in New Zealand. As someone familiar with the relatively close-knit journalism community in this country, and as someone who went through a relatively severe and public shutdown herself only last year, I think Tova offers a valuable insider perspective. However, this major story was not the bulk of Tova episode 19, which is titled Blood, Feces, Vomit and Cockroaches Inside Aotearoa's Emergency Housing Crisis. I found it a confronting listen uh, as Tova's guest described the experiences of staying in a motel which is used for emergency accommodation. And it wasn't just her, it was her, her guest and, and her daughter. Now, from my relative privilege, thanks to choosing the right parents and having things turn out pretty okay for me so far, I kind of find it hard to imagine being in this situation. But it's the reality for nearly 6,500 people across Aotearoa, half of whom are children. This is an emergency and the problem is complex. The solution will require more than simply building more houses because the underlying issues are more complex than that. I understand the desire to build more houses and to do it quickly. There are several drivers for this other than emergency housing. Increasing immigration and housing unaffordability further exacerbate the demand for more homes in New Zealand. Last week, I wrote about some of the environmental considerations of what defines the right place and wrong places to build. There are also cultural and community, community considerations for location. And I don't just mean which school zone we'd like to be in. Being close to relatives, friends and employment and not being too close to noise and pollution are incredibly important for building a strong community, as is stability. Our family has been displaced unexpectedly once, and I went into that, I touched on that last week. We didn't spend a single night though without the support of friends and family. So again, I struggle to comprehend, because of my privilege, just how hard life must be for anyone trying to raise a family under the constant threat of losing their home at the whim of a landlord. 
And that, again, is the reality for so many New Zealanders. As well as being in a suitable location, I'm a big advocate for housing quality, by which I mean dry, healthy, and efficient to maintain comfort throughout the year. Which presents us with a project management challenge. How can we produce good quality homes cost effectively and quickly? Is it possible to achieve this impossible trifecta of outcomes? Related to all this is a proposal from the Ministry of Business Innovation and Employment, or MB, to review the building consent process in New Zealand. This is something I'd like to look at in more detail because we must get the balance right. In 2023, MB sought public submissions in response to an options paper on the review of the building consent system. And this week, MB published a summary of the 270 submissions received. And these are the key themes that MB reports back from the submissions. There was a good response to the options discussion document with 270 submissions received from a broad range and representation of stakeholders from the building and construction sector and broader public. Weak support for statutory change to promote and give prominence to competition in the building regulation system, but strong support for non-regulatory approaches. There was strong support for removing impediments to product substitution and variation, but also an acknowledgement that of the need to carefully consider the performance of a product when substituting. General agreement that the roles and responsibilities of participants in the building sector need to be strengthened and made clearer, particularly for designers. There was also strong support for clarifying the role and legal status of producer statements. There was broad in-principle support to establish self-certification as a pathway for approved professionals and accredited companies and a new commercial consent pathway, but concerns about the readiness of the sector to take on the additional responsibilities and accountabilities. So I want to pause there. That's a very interesting topic, and I know there's been some discussions on LinkedIn about that uh, and elsewhere. Uh, in, in, a set, in essence, what we're talking about is designers, builders, and certain approved professionals, whatever that means, uh, to self-certify. So not have to wait for someone from council or a, uh, an accreditation authority to come and check work before they can progress. Um, and with regards to the readiness of the sector, um, my understanding is that that's not just the builders and designers, but it's also people like insurance companies and um, the people who are uh, guaranteeing those uh, that work uh, into the future. Uh, so we continue, there are four more uh, summary items. There was general agreement that the performance of the building consent system could be improved and made more efficient and streamlined. Specifically, there was strong support for improving consistency of consent services at a national level, particularly through nationally consistent processes and requirements and centralized training for building control officers. Just pausing once again, I think all of this sounds very good uh, and a lot of people would agree with those statements, but I think the devil's going to be in the detail. Reading on again, strong support for boosting capability and capacity across the building consent system, though more consideration and joined up services, sorry, through more 
coordination and joined up service delivery, including through shared workflows or service arrangements and a centralized resource of expertise. Um, coordination and joined up service delivery is an interesting one because I'm aware of many different systems across the country uh, and so larger builders who are working in different uh, territorial authorities or across different councils will quite often have to deal with completely different ways of processing consents uh, and that is very inefficient. And the final two points here, broad agreement that MB needs to improve its oversight and stewardship functions and better drive improvements in the performance of the regulatory system through more collaboration, better monitoring and being more responsive to issues and risks. And finally, mixed views on whether Māori face additional barriers across the wider building process and the intent of the options for the building consent system to be more responsive to Māori needs and aspirations, namely capacity, capability and relationship issues. So as I said, I think the general theme there is that people want the system to be better uh, and there's lots of um, ideas or, or um, I guess high level positive words like coordination, more joined up, uh, more efficient, but the devil will be in the detail as to how that actually gets implemented. I'll put links to that uh, so you can check it out and we can watch progress on that. I'm sure there'll be more coming from uh, from MB uh, to see what the new government does with that and where, where to from here. So back to this week's episode. As I say, I think we can probably make the consenting process more efficient and reduce unnecessary delays and costs. I definitely agree with that. Um, and from the feedback and that summary, I think the industry agrees. I believe we also need to maintain adequate checks and balances to ensure that the homes we desperately do need today are fit for purpose and will continue to be fit for purpose for the next at least 50 years, which is the design requirement for homes in New Zealand. But the reality is that most of our homes are in fact, they stick around for a lot longer than that. So we really need to be designing for more like 90 to 100 years. I can empathize that waiting months for building consent is expensive and frustrating. But opening up the floodgates and building unfit houses in the wrong places could end up being even more expensive ultimately for all of us. Love to get your thoughts on those issues, uh, both emergency housing, but also what we do to speed up the delivery of housing right across the board while also maintaining quality standards. We're going to jump to the other end of the spectrum now, as I mentioned early on, and listen to uh, Jonathan Holmes, who is working as a passive house consultant and is also the proud owner, as he describes, of one of New Zealand's only certified passive house premium homes, uh, which goes above and beyond uh, providing the energy requirements for uh, itself, uh, actually has surplus to, to charge a couple of EVs. So a um, bit, bit of a gear change here, um, but I, uh, I think it's useful to, to look at what is possible and take that best case example of what Jonathan does and for us to think about what's 
what can we take from that? What's relevant for, for the mass market here in New Zealand? So here he is. I started out by asking Jonathan uh, what his favorite building was. Hmm. I, I, in, in the kind of people's choice competition at the House of House Hui, I actually voted for, uh, I didn't actually vote for one a project that I was involved with. I voted for design uh, by Rafe McLean Associates. And um, oh, yeah. it's a house in, um, what, in Twizel, uh, Mackenzie Country. Uh -huh. Because I think the challenge is to, once you've got uh, the handle on building science and passive house, is to actually then combine interesting architecture with the building science. You know, it's easy to do a square box and point it north and keep it simple, but to do something that's kind of um, a bit, has a certain flair, architectural flair to it, or you can tell it's being designed by an architect. So yeah, I voted, I voted for one of his projects, actually. Um, nice. So that's probably is, one of my current Is current that a favorite. single, like, is that a, just a standalone home? Yeah, yeah. Nice, very good. All right. Hey, well, uh, let's uh, let's jump back a little bit. Um, give a bit of a back background to you and how you got into what you're doing today, because you're not originally from the building industry, are you? No, I, I'm I'm a ch chartered accountant, um, having done an accounting and finance degree. Um, then I I became a computer auditor, uh, did various things. Um, worked for telecom and banks and um, uh, energy company. And I was involved in implementing a very large um, IT system. And then I became the head of IT for a tourism business. Uh, and then the opportunity came up to build my own house. And I thought, well, having just put solar on our garage roof, and um, I thought potentially there was a better way than kind of bolting a power station onto a house to actually build that energy efficiency into the building up front. Um, and the opportunity came up to build our own house. So we've only uh, at the start of oh, being involved in the construction industry was as being a client. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I'm, whilst I've got um, a cousin and an uncle who are both architects, I, I frankly had no idea what even the designer did. And, and to start the journey, I actually Googled um, as Eric out of 30 by 40 workshop in the States. He does quite a few YouTube um, videos on what the concept design stage actually was. So yeah, I had no background in construction, um, but I, I came across Passive House attending the conference in Christchurch. That's oh, it's going back quite a few years now, probably five or six years. Yep. And I sneaked in um, to the audience as a client because most people are you know, the architects and designers. And I thought, you know, sneak in as a client and just uh, absorb some of this sort of wisdom. Um, I guess also being British, have a sort of natural respect for anything out of Germany, you know, very good engineers. So um, if, if it's something out of Germany, I can kind of trust that. And uh, the more I've got into Passive House through actually building my own house and you kick the tires on it, the more kind of you learn about the benefits and the sort of the um, robustness of the thinking around Passive House. So yeah, not 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 probably a traditional approach, no, no design, I'm not a builder, just, just a client. Uh, but a fairly involved client. Who was your designer? Who was the architect on on that? So house? Rafe McLean was the was the designer. I, I want. I guess one thing that I brought from being involved in a very large IT project was if you can assemble a good team, and you can set uh, um, an inspirational goal, uh, and you get a good project manager, then you know, right, you know, you'll most likely achieve that that goal. Um, I 
And then if you can't achieve it, you kind of get rid of this project manager and get another one until you achieve that project, until you complete the project. But unfortunately, I was a project manager, so I couldn't fire myself. So yeah, I, I, we, we, I deliberately picked Passive House Premium, uh, and that went into the client brief with Rafe, along with you know three-bedroom house, et cetera, et cetera, how much money we had to spend, and, and said so basically uh, that it has to be um, Passive House Premium, um, which probably is quite exciting for him because there weren't there weren't any um, certified to that standard in the country, um, and I did it because it was supposed to be hard. And I thought, well, that, if we if we aim for that and miss slightly, then we'll have a still great house. Yeah. Uh, what does that mean exactly? If you can summarise that in a in a couple of sentences, what is passive house premium? Yeah. So it it you get the um, passive house classic, which is all about health and comfort and a level of energy efficiency for the building. Um, then plus you add some solar panels uh, to make it, I guess, net zero energy over the course of one year. And Passive House Premium is um, turning up the dial a little bit on reducing the amount of energy the building uses uh, for heating and cooling, but also in total. And then you, for us, we ended up roughly doubling the size of that solar array uh, such that we are way beyond net zero energy. So the house um, uses about half in total uses about half what a typical New Zealand house um, would use. Um, so we can produce 500% more energy in a year than we actually use to run the house. Um, so then we, we run two electric cars and the house for nothing and still export a surplus over the course of the year. So essentially it's, it's combining net uh, re renewable energy um, into that thinking around a comfortable, warm, healthy home. Yeah. So a couple of things there. Uh, you say it uses half of the typical New Zealand house, the, the typical New Zealand consumption, uh, but, or and, it performs better, I would imagine, than the typical New Zealand house as well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to put into words um, what it's like to live in a passive house. Um, the kind of best single word that I can come up with is, a kind of sense of calm mm -hmm. so as you as you sort of go about your daily duties or activities in a house making breakfast and uh, watching tv listening to music whatever you do um or even trying to sleep when it's hot outside you know it's sitting at a nice temperature the indoor air quality is really good and it and it ju you just sort of feel like you're a little more relaxed um and comfortable and then it, another way of putting it is the building looks after you rather than you having to look after the building. You're not having to wipe the walls down or, or wipe the windows down and get rid of the mold, um, turn the heating on in one room and then go into another room and it's too cold. Literally, you know, essentially you can, you can wear shorts. It's that classic thing about wearing shorts and a t-shirt every day. Um, it does lead to the odd wardrobe malfunction when you go outside though, <laughs> because you sort of get so used to it sitting at like 21 degrees yeah. that you go outside and go, whoops. So now we actually carry a, a warm jacket in the car so that if we, if we, you know, we go out to a restaurant or something like that and we go, oh my God, we just haven't put enough clothes on. Um, yeah. We've got a, we've a decent jacket in the car to, to put on. Um, but yeah, it's quite... when I, when I wake up, I know exactly what it is doing outside because it's kind of <laughs> similar inside. Yeah, I guess the other thing is um, it's quiet. Um, yeah. Our house is made out of 
uh, sit panels, structural insulated panels with wall in the service cavity, uh, which is, I, I suspect, noisy for a passive house. Um, yeah. If it was more kind of wall bat insulation, uh, it would be quieter. But okay. having said that, it's probably as quiet as a library and not as a morgue. You know, it is so, <laughs> so quiet that literally yeah. um, we don't know if somebody knocks on our front door. Um, yeah. and, and we've had it where people have come to visit, assumed we're not in, and, and then left again, uh, and we just we don't hear it. So you don't yeah. hear it if it's thunder and lightning. You, you don't smell the wood smoke of your neighbors burning um, wood on their wood burners in winter because the mechanical ventilation is filtering all that out. You don't get the pollens uh, and dust um, that you might aggregate condition like asthma or hay fever. So essentially, your sort of body just you just feel more kind of relaxed and comfortable and calm, and mm. it's quiet. Um, yeah, it, it's very different. It, it, it means that going on a holiday is quite challenging because <laughs> and if you go on holiday, that is, of course, it's not a passive house hotel or motel that you stay yeah. in. And then, as as a person that's working now in the industry, you, you're kind of walk into your room, you take your suitcases in, and you look at a window and go, "Oh no, it's it's." Um, double glazed aluminium, not recessed, there's condensation everywhere, there's holes drilled into the frame to uh -huh. let the water, you, you can't get to sleep because it's stuffy, it's too cold or too hot, or yeah, it's it's just nice to just, um, yeah, it ruins holidays for sure. <laughs> and you've gone beyond even that and started to look pretty in depth at embodied carbon and, and the materials and, and the energy yeah. that goes into the construction phase of well your building but also the the, the buildings that you work on now um yep. tell us a bit about how you got into that yeah so i i i i was interested in um having built the house and lived in it for a while what the carbon footprint of the building was you know where where you kind of learn that you know smaller cars are more economical than bigger cars and they produce less pollution um so what was the impact on the planet from me building this house. So whilst there are the brands and other agencies of, and you can get tools from overseas, that I ended up using a tool called PH Ribbon, which plugs into um, the software package we use, um, House of House planning package to do the energy modeling and the building performance modeling. And essentially rather than kind of throwing that away and starting again in a new fresh tool and entering all that data about the house, essentially this plugs into the Excel spreadsheet reuses that data and attaches the carbon information. Um, and then you can very quickly get to a position where you understand the carbon footprint of the materials you use and their life cycle. But also because you're modeling how much energy gets used by the building, not just you know the hot water cylinder or how much you use for heating and cooling, but everything, the plug loads as well, you basically get an annual kind of final energy demand for the building. And then once you look at the pathway ahead for decarbonizing the grid, you can basically get this picture of embodied carbon and operational carbon, which you can kind of put together to get this total picture. So that's that that's it was just a matter of interest. Um, and then that tool being based in the UK automatically benchmarks against um, Letty, the London now low energy transformation initiative and um, Reba, the Royal Institute of British Architects, who have both set targets for embodied carbon. Of course, this is a British tool. So the first challenge was how to make the tool relevant and 
applicable to use in New Zealand because that's where my house is based. So um, actually far, far easier than you might imagine because essentially um, the tool uses um, knowledge of the electricity grid. So you can get that from brands. Mm -hmm. And then the amount of construction waste that we produce typically on a New Zealand build, you can get that from brands. And then you, you want to understand the New Zealand fleet. So if you get some, you go down to your local hardware store and drive back and it, or you get it delivered on a, a small van or you get something shipped from Europe and then transported by lorry, those vehicle fleet emissions are very specific to New Zealand and, and it isn't applicable to use the, the numbers for the UK. Yeah. So you get those, all the, there's only sort of five sets of data that you need to swap out to then use that tool in New Zealand. Right. Um, so in in essence, so I started, I did that for my own house after I adapted the tool, if you like. And then um, I, I, I work for both a UK company called Beyond Carbon, but also a New Zealand um, architecture firm called VIR, VIA Architecture. So um, as part of that, we approached a, cu a couple of architects um, to see whether they wanted us to um, uh, model the carbon on their own homes. So one is um, Team Green, Sean Taylor's house mm -hmm. um, in Queenstown, and Joe Leith's house, which actually got featured in the Passive House Plus magazine. And you'll notice if you read the magazine that each of the projects has uh, a, an embodied carbon um, calculation that's um, included in the article about that particular project. Yeah. So that, those two things happened. And then once we kind of cut our teeth on doing the calculations, we then offered it as a consulting service. So we've done it on a number of residential builds now and um, a couple of commercial buildings, including the, the, the Dunlop Hub, which is going to be featured in the Reimagine 24 yes. global event next week. Um, what So beyond those sort of, sort of passive house projects and, and people really pushing the um, envelope at that end, what's the market for doing carbon accounting, doing life cycle analysis and embodied carbon calculations? I, I would say um, it's it's a, a client that's motivated to understand their build. Um, and increasingly, um, clients that are coming to us are kind of pre-qualifying themselves. They're interested in doing Passive House. And because of the government's initiative around building for climate change or just their general awareness in, in, in the climate crisis, um, they, they may ask. And um, we've had clients that have wanted us to look at the whole sustainability of the particular build. We have a, mm -hmm. a client in Auckland and that includes water conservation and, and, um, uh, and carbon. And um, yeah, so I, I would say it's limited to be honest, but then essentially of the mass market in New Zealand, you know, only a small proportion is doing passive house. And then of that proportion, only a very small proportion is currently considering carbon. Yeah. I, I think of the, of the um, wider industry, the, because the government is requiring certain projects that it conducts itself to have the embodied carbon calculated, Mm -hmm. then that's sort of priming the industry to start thinking about carbon. Yeah. Um, I, I, the other thing that has quite uniquely happened in New Zealand is brands, this sort of building research association uh, agency, they've calculated the carbon budget. For, so if you take the Paris Agreement 
which New Zealand has signed up to, we, you might get, this is how big the pie is to achieve 1.5 degrees of warming or two degrees of warming. Yep. What slice of that pie could, could New Zealand take? Um, and then of the New Zealand slice, how much could be allocated to the construction industry? Mm-hmm. And then of all the buildings and ex- new buildings and existing buildings, um, brands have actually calculated an individual carbon budget for each building type. So residential, single family home or an office. So if you want to answer, so whilst the tool that I use um, benchmarks against aspirational targets and their UK ones, and they're a stretch target, they, you need to be able to answer the question, how much is good enough? You know, mm. what level of, what carbon footprint is acceptable? Uh, and that's where the carbon budget comes in. So to mm. give, that, give you some context, so uh, brands assess a residential home lasting 90 years, and they've said, if you're gonna build a new one um, and operate it for those 90 years, its carbon budget for 1.5 degrees is 35 tons of carbon. Well, that might sound quite a lot, you know, 35 tons or 49 tons for two degrees. If I take the carbon footprint of just building an electric car, the Polestar 2, um, that ranges from 19 to 21 tons to just build the car. Now, we're saying we have to build a house for 35 tons and run it for 90 years. Um, and if if we're all kind of quite conscious that the last year was one of the hottest years ever on record and we surpassed the 1.5 degrees of warming, brands have actually suggested that the carbon budget at the rate where exhausting it will be depleted fully. So essentially, whilst it's not the general awareness in the industry, it's gonna come home to roost very rapidly if the government pursues this building for climate change agenda. Yeah. Yeah. Going back to your situation, it would be easy for people to say, uh, it's right for Jonathan, living in this beautiful place in a fairly idealistic location um, with a couple of EVs in the garage. Why should people who uh are just struggling to to find a place to live why should they care about carbon yeah so it crudely this isn't a perfect analogy but um carbon is kind of stuff if you like it's it's what makeup makes up materials um that we use in our buildings and stuff costs money mm-hmm. so it's not a perfect analogy to say carbon equals cash but it's 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 still a valid way to think about it. So if you can target, if you think of a building holistically as a system um, and you want to achieve comfortable, healthy, energy efficient, cheap to run, affordable to build and low carbon, then you can get a kind of, um, if you took that as a Venn diagram, there's a piece in the middle where you can try and get a win-win, win-win-win, where you can aim for low carbon. And, and essentially the, We'll be diving into this in a bit more detail in a presentation, but um, essentially, if you can make the building uh, simple, if you can drive the complexity out, you not only reduce the carbon footprint of the building, but you drive down its cost and the risk of of the construction um, and the cost to operate. And then the second factor that you might use before thinking about carbon is sufficiency. So 
in essence, virtually every single report that we issue around carbon says build smaller. Yeah. In other words, use less stuff. So if you actually build smaller and use less stuff, it'll cost you less. So th there's a, there's an alignment, if you like. Yeah, certain things, if you push it um, very hard, then, you know, putting triple glazing in costs more money than putting double glazing in. But essentially, if you see it as a system of or a, a whole load of co-benefits of what you're trying to achieve, um, it's not just a shelter that it costs X to put it up. Um, so, yeah, I, th I, I'm, I think it's just one of the factors that we need to consider, the client needs to consider when they're building a house. So, you know, when you're writing that project b brief, um, it's, it's just one of the things that should be um, itemized with some targets and quite specific targets within that. And it doesn't necessarily drive out an affordable build um, or a healthy home or a comfortable home. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, can you just explain that a bit further? Because I mean, affordability is top of mind for most people looking at the building uh, industry and particularly housing and real estate. So how how do we reconcile that issue around inaffordability with the desire to not just be energy efficient and comfortable, but also lower carbon? Yeah, so we there's a, a certified residential build. Um, it's the Finch residence in Christchurch that was built relatively recently and certified House of House Classic. And that uses um, a suspended timber floor. So in essence, we, we're not getting a digger in, clearing the site, pouring con put, putting down polystyrene and pouring concrete into it. Um, we're based, they used um, a system where these feet went into the ground, mm -hmm. uh, not screwed in, they were sort of rammed into the ground, and then the floor of the building built above the ground. Um, so it, essentially the foundations of the house were done in one day. Um, so while well, you go, oh, well, what's low carbon about that? Well, at the end of the life of the building, instead of demolishing it, and then saying how much is going to landfill and how much is going into recycling, you can actually lift, lift the building up and relocate the whole building. So whilst, so that's a, a, essentially a floor made out of timber not made out of concrete. Mm -hmm. so, so just a different, I mean, we've traditionally done suspended timber floors um, in New Zealand, but, and then just keeping the, we tend to use timber frame construction yeah. um, here in New Zealand. So essentially that allows you to use a conventional building method that all your builders will know and essentially put, um, you can use a sustainable kind of insulation packed into the timber frame. Uh, you can use wool. Um, and it's not making a conscious decision really that it's low carbon. It just happens to be low carbon. Yeah. And there are new methods coming on board where you might have straw bale, which is quite a costly way of building, but now you can get a modular panelized straw bale. So right. you may pay more for the material, but because they got this sort of prefabricated nature of it, the building goes yeah. up more quickly and you yeah. save money from the the labor side rather than the material side. So I, th I think it's it, it it's taking this, doesn't need to add cost necessarily um, yeah. if you're creative and innovative. Um, what would you like to see in the industry over the next 
uh, a few, say, five to ten, 10 years, we, we've got some things that we really need to do globally. Uh, but what would you like to see happen? What do you think are the priorities for the New Zealand uh, building industry? Yeah. So, I mean, we're doing some amazing things across the country. And I, I, I think, I guess the first step is to be sort of team New Zealand, if you like, mm -hmm. um, and collaborate because we simply don't have time to learn all our lessons individually. So whilst I attended a course on zero carbon construction, and it was explained a bit like learning how to play golf, you don't know how to do this, get some lessons, start trying to play golf, get better at it, get some more lessons, continue. Now, we could do all that individually, and we get there eventually, but we don't have time to get there eventually. So to get there quicker, if we could collaborate as an industry and share that best practice. And because we're um, somewhat you know, geographically um, located at the end of the world, we could look at countries that are further ahead. And, and um, so Leti, Reba, the, um, the World Green Building Council have got fantastic kind of uh, learnings and material that we could look to adopt. So if we could um, look at that, adapt it slightly for the New Zealand context, and then adapt and then and then implement. So I, I think rather than reinventing the wheel, so I think collaborative approach, but try not to reinvent the wheel when there's a perfectly good wheel, perhaps in Europe or somewhere else in the country we could just start using. Um, and then and then just collaborate like crazy. In terms of giving a driver to that, um, we can all sit around and go, oh, I wish the government would just tell us what to do. This is a bit like kind of, I, I wish, um, yeah, one of my parents would just tell me to do something. Well, I've, you know, I'm getting on quite a lot um, now and I can make my own decisions. So I think it would be nice to see the, in the industry say, well, this is something we have to do. We're going to be told to do it soon. How about we, we work on a way of doing this ourselves um, and maybe working with, MB in partnership, maybe working with brands in partnership. We've got everything we need. Um, we know what the carbon budget is that we have to try and achieve. And then if we can get some examples, there's nothing like getting a few examples of these buildings constructed, and then people can go around, learn from them. So I think, yeah, in short, we need to take some leadership in the industry and take some initiative and then collaborate and, and not reinvent the wheel and say we have to reinvent it here in New Zealand with our own flavor of how to build a net zero energy building. Um, yeah. So whether I, think it, I don't yeah. know, but I think a lot of people would appreciate the calm that you talked about by visiting uh, a home like yours. And there are lots of others around now, which is great, but it's very hard to take a photo of that uh, and, and differentiate it from some other architecturally designed home that also looks beautiful but doesn't necessarily feel the same yeah i think the, the other thing that um i think it's a cultural thing or certainly mindset i think the we all tend to think we've got the unique version of the truth it's almost like i i believe in this religion and i, mm -hmm. I don't entertain any other religions we're quite tribal in our beliefs and i think what what needs to unite us is sort of solving this problem and and actually delivering New um, to New Zealanders the buildings they deserve, and then unite behind that and say, okay, maintain an open mind and an open heart. It's it's okay to be critical, but not 
not cynical, if you like. Nice. Um, so you kind of, I, I remember we have a, a social get together locally between builders and, and designers. And one person was saying, you know, in our Alpine climate, that 90 mil framing was the way to build a house and much cheaper than 140 mil framing. Well, that's true if you buy one meter of it, but by the time you put it into a building, um, you might have to put those 90 mil studs at 300 centers and a 140 mil frame at 600 centers. So you might end up having a lot less timber in a better performing building that mm. actually costs less. But if you're, do if you're so stuck, kind of this is the way we do it, I won't change. So it's definitely, we need the leadership, the collaboration, uh, reuse the material from, uh, from within New Zealand, best practice and overseas, but also just be open to that, to change. Um, nice. And we, the industry is very, um, we're only as strong as you, if, if you like the weakest link. Yeah. So we, we do definitely need to get kind of the whole industry together somehow to, to get in almost, and we have an advantage here because how big is New Zealand? Mm. Um, it's, it's relatively, relatively small uh, country. So it could be 30 people from the construction industry that you need to put in a room and uh, like a COP28, but for the construction industry, mm. put them in the room until they come up with the answer. Uh, feeding yeah. them coffee, obviously. Um, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't think it's technically that hard. Yeah. Um, we have kind of everything we need, and we just need to sort of choose to succeed. Awesome. Where can people get in touch with you, Jonathan? Probably the best way is on LinkedIn. Um, yep. I, I'm frequently posting on there, um, rather than if you just search for Jonathan Holmes on uh, on LinkedIn, that's probably the best way. Excellent. Hey, well, thank you very much for your time. I'll uh, put some some links so uh, people can see some of the uh, images of uh, stuff that you've posted as well in the past and uh, some of the great resources you put in, in there. But uh, keep up the good work. And, uh, yeah, we'll look forward to um, seeing more of you and uh, the great work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you, Matthew. Cheers, Jonathan. Cheers. Bye-bye. And that was Jonathan Holmes, who lives in a beautiful home himself the uh the first certified passive house premium home in new zealand in fact uh and he has blogged about that uh, you can find uh some of the historic pages uh, on facebook but check out jonathan on linkedin as he mentioned i'll put a link to that in the show notes which you can find at homestylegreen.com if you search up this latest episode of build aotearoa also, Jonathan will be presenting alongside Elrond Burrell. Uh, some of his work will be being presented during this week's Reimagined Buildings 2024, which is an incredible event coming up produced by the Passive House Accelerator. Uh, a lot of you will know that I am fortunate to co-host the Passive House podcast produced by the Passive House Accelerator. And uh, this year, they're launching a brand new bit of a world first event, uh, a 24 hour event that will run um, from uh, 12 noon New York time and literally go around the world talking about some amazing projects in all different climate zones and there will absolutely be something for everyone. So check that out. Um, it's still There's still time to, to register. Uh, think of it as a, a 24 hour virtual conference where you'll get to, to meet people from all around the world and see some amazing projects and I 
guarantee that there'll be something that's applicable to whatever climate zone you're in, because uh, that is the point about, about inspiring people and sharing knowledge that uh, is applicable around the world. So check that out over at PassiveHouseAccelerator.com. Uh, it's sure to be a fantastic event, and it's great that we've got people like Jonathan, Elrond, uh, others here from New Zealand, and also some great hosts from Australia as well, talking about how Passive House uh, is relevant to solving some of the particular issues that we deal with down in this part of the world in our climate. All right, uh, I'd love to get your feedback, thoughts on anything from this week's show, uh, particularly the emergency housing crisis issue uh, that we are facing and also how we speed up building consenting in this country but also maintain those standards for, for homes that are going to last the length of time that they need to last and also be fit for purpose. So lots of things to uh, figure out and some of those things we'll, we'll be discussing in future episodes. Thanks very much for tuning in. Uh, please share the words, uh, spread the uh, links if you can, if you found this useful and uh, I'll be back again next week for Build Aotearoa.